Hey everybody, this is your host, Matt Castellini, and welcome to Chicago Capital. We have a great episode lined up today, but before that, a word from our sponsors, World Business Chicago. In 2021 alone, local founders have raised more than $5 billion in VC dollars, making Chicago a national destination for founders, investors, and innovators. As the city of Chicago's economic development organization, World Business Chicago drives growth and opportunity for our local tech economy and innovation ecosystem through its flagship programs such as the Chicago Venture Summit, Startup Chicago, Think Chicago, and Venture Engine. Learn more via worldbusinesschicago.com. Sonny, thank you so much for hopping on Chicago Capital. Really, really appreciate you taking the time. It's always great to talk to another uh, booth founder. And unfortunately, you know, there's a, a lot in the news this week that makes this conversation definitely relevant. But thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you. Is, is Chicago Capital? Is that that's the name of the podcast, right? That is the name of the podcast. Yes. <laughs> is, it, is it is it is it new? Did you start it? Uh, we've been doing it for about almost a year. Um, okay. Okay. Yeah. Definitely new then. Definitely. Yeah. Uh, oh yeah. In the in the podcast, never heard of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. In the podcast world, we've basically been here for a minute. So yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, so it'd be great if we could kind of walk through your background, your path to actuate. And uh, you know how you set about starting this company. Great. Uh, I'll try to give. There's a long version and a short version. I'll try to give the medium version, uh, just for the sake of time, but also kind of not leave out any juicy details. But I was born in Taiwan and grew up in South Africa. And the only reason why it's relevant is because South Africa has one of the highest rates of violent crime and gun violence in the world. Uh, and we can get into the whole thing about uh, the apartheid regime, the transition from our apartheid regime, and why. The country ended up devolving into uh, in, into a much more heightened um, state of, of violent crime, but ultimately uh, it's impacted us in several ways. And our close family friend of ours was actually fatally shot in his own home in a home intrusion. So this is one of those things that uh, sticks with you in your memory, right? Sticks with you uh, as part of your formative years. And I've always been interested in public safety. I've always been interested in uh, doing things that'll protect other people. Um, I've always been interested in entrepreneurship. My mom got me a Windows 95 computer when I was uh, 10 years old. And I felt I used to take it apart. I used to overclock the CPU. Um, I used to get the blue screen of death and figure out how to get out of the blue screen of death. So I used to do all these things as a little kid. Um, but yeah, we ended up coming to the United States and um, got my green card. I ended up serving in the Marine Corps for 10 years between reserve and active duty. So I was a reservist while I was an undergrad at the University of Illinois. Then when I became a U.S. citizen, I applied to be a Marine officer and, and commissioned into active duty after finishing undergrad. And in 2012, I went to Afghanistan, decided that I didn't want to be a Marine officer for the rest of my life, started applying to business schools, and was very fortunate that uh, the admissions committee made a huge mistake and gave me a half scholarship to Booth. Um, so I decided to, it was a no brainer. My, my parents were in the suburbs 40 minutes away. So I came to Booth, Hey, a top three, top five program, depending who you ask and, and half the money and the GI bill covering the rest. Of, of course, I, of course I would come. So I came and 
like a lot of other veterans, I decided to recruit for management consulting because I had no idea what I wanted to do. I did have some startup ideas, but they were just really, really lame startup ideas. I remember asking my booth classmates about it, my roommates, and they'll be like, yeah, that's stupid. Don't, yeah, don't do that. Um, and did this range from like a healthy energy drink idea to um, an idea where you would use like natural language processing to help people with um, university and business school applications, like admissions consulting, but an automated way, right? Just not, not, nothing that really stuck. Um, so I was a consultant for, for about two years. And ultimately, uh, what brought me to the idea that became Actuate was after a Las Vegas shooting, I wanted to look into how we can use technology to save lives during crisis situations. I know we're not going to solve gun violence. Um, it's going to take way. It's going to take a whole of society approach to solve gun violence. Um, but perhaps we can build technology that can save lives when bad things happen um, from time to time. So I did a bunch of research, and I found that AI models are increasingly outperforming human beings. So this is uh, early 2018, late 2017, early 2018. As of 2017, um, algorithms submitted to the ImageNet Challenge have been outperforming human beings in terms of object recognition, right? Um, but I also found that there hasn't been a company that's really built a credible product that had a lot of traction tackling this space. So one thing I was taught in the Marine Corps is bias for action. If you have conviction, go do it. And, um, you know, I, I decided that I was going to go and do this. So um, the first thing I needed to do was recruit a technical team, as even though Growing up, I like taking apart computers. I'm not an engineer by trade. So I was lucky enough to come across another booth alum just by my LinkedIn ninja skills. Uh, so Benji Omex in the class of 2019, he was a first year MBA at the time. I asked him for 30 minutes of his time at a, at, for a coffee chat. He was interning at OC Adventures, who today is one of our investors. Um, and just want his advice. Hey, how do I raise money? I have no idea how to approach a VC. I don't want to talk to a partner and embarrass myself. Um, so I'm talking to you. And this guy just blew my socks off. Like 30 minute conversation turned to three hours. And I just couldn't get enough of the knowledge in his brain. He just knew all the things that I didn't know. I also noticed he was dropping hints. He said, hey, let me know if I could help out. So after the meeting, I emailed him and said, hey, forget helping out. Uh, do you want to be a co-founder? And he seemed really interested. So we met up. He's like, well, how's the equity going to be split? And this is still one of best and proudest decisions I've made. Um, and a lot of people will be like, well, it's my idea. I've started working on it first. So 80-20, right? I'll be like, hey, let's go half. Let's go half because I believe in you because I need you. Um, and he's paid back my trust in spades. And to, to this day, uh, this company will be nothing without Ben. He's uh, the rock of my professional life. Um, I count on him for things big and small. And uh, yeah, we started working together. <clears throat> so started working together early 2018. By late 2018, we closed a small angel slash pre-seed round. Uh, the Booth Network was somewhat helpful there. Got some angel checks from some of my classmates in 2015. But other than that, Chicago is a really, I think it's changing now, but it's a really, really tough environment for an AI companies to raise pre-seed funding with no traction really, really tough. A lot of people will take meetings with you and want to hear what you have to do. Nobody will write you a check. So um, Ben was like, hey, should we move to New York? It's easier to raise money. I said, sure. Um, so 
in June of 2019, we actually relocated to New York City. And ironically, most of our money at the time, uh, about $2 million seed round, came from Silicon Valley and not New York. Uh, but I guess, yeah, I, I think both of us uh, enjoyed being in New York more than more in San Francisco, just in terms of the, the style of life, right? Um, so we were there then, started focused on building, started focusing, on, sorry, not building, selling, and trying to get the solution in the hands of as many customers as possible. Uh, landed some customers. So a, a few schools in the Chicago area are actually active customers today in terms of gun detection. Um, and had something like 20 pilots lined up. But ultimately, um, you know, the pandemic hit and people weren't thinking about gun detection. They were thinking about how to not get sick. So we had to really take a look at our business model. Hey, is our company dead? We got a ton of runway. Is our company dead? Do we have a business? So we started doing some research and again, going back to drawing board, doing customer discovery and trying to figure out like, what can we still build that resonates with the market? So we tried some crazy things like building social media, not social, social distance detection and mass detection. We also knew that's going to be um, uh, a temporal thing, right? It's, it's not going to, it's not going to stick because once the pandemic passes, these are not going to be relevant. I think our big break came in May of 2020 where a big security company came to us and said, Hey, all we want from you is people and vehicle detection. And we use people and vehicle detection to do off, um, off, off business hours monitoring for every single school in the territory of Puerto Rico, like 800 something schools. And AI that we're using sucks right now. It's not working for us. We're getting too many false positives. Um, so can you help us? So we built something, they piloted it for a month. And um, in July of 2020, they signed a $350,000 contract. And we're like, okay, uh, clearly there's something speaking to us in the market that says it's time to not necessarily pivot in terms of give up what we did previously, but at least expand our business offering and start focusing on this. So that's what we've been doing. <clears throat> um, today, we are deployed on nearly 14,000 cameras across the nation. Um, yeah, and we have several million dollars in annual recurring revenues right now. We have a government contract to help the army with inventory using computer vision. We still have our gun detection customers and we just closed an $8 million Series A. Um, in May of 2021, which was led by Tribeca Venture Partners here in New York, but also with some participation from some Chicago area funds like Tensility, who participated in our seed round. Um, they doubled down and also OCA Ventures. We got a small check from them um, during MVC, but they're like, hey, we see you guys are doing well. Can we give you a lot more money? So we, we carved out an allocation for them as well. So. Uh, that's where we are today. And uh, sorry for being long-winded, but happy to answer any questions. No, that's amazing. That's that's so, so helpful to to contextualize where you guys have been and where you're kind of at right now. You mentioned uh, one of your particular customers was using an AI solution with too many false positives. Um, yeah. I guess, could you you know walk the audience through what that means from their perspective, why that's such a nuisance, and how you guys are able to uh, cut false positives by such a dramatic degree? Yeah, so uh, this company is, so there's an emerging sector in the security industry, a physical security industry, it's not cyber, um, called remote monitoring, remote guarding. And what that means, instead of having boots on the ground and having guards walking around, 
there's people monitoring your cameras. And as you might imagine, that's almost impossible to do, right? Like you're going to stare at a camera screen all day and can, how many camera screens can a single person stare at? So that's when AI really helps you filter out the feeds that are not relevant and only shows you the feeds where uh, something is going on. And that's why they just need really, really strong, basic people and vehicle detection. Because outside of business hours, if somebody at 2 a.m. Start, starts walking into your car dealership, uh, car dealership lot, yeah, it could be some, somebody that's just passing through. But that, first of all, that's trespassing. Um, or, or secondly, it could be somebody trying to steal a catalytic converter, trying to vandalize your cars, trying to or steal a car, right? So you want to be able to respond to incidents like that. So that's what these security monitoring companies do, remote monitoring companies do. And as you might imagine, their biggest driver of at least variable cost is labor. They have to hire human beings, human operators to vet this video footage. And if you if your signal to noise ratio is too low, if you're just getting a bunch of nonsense coming in, then um, the cost goes up because you have more people monitoring fewer cameras. But you have really, really strong AI, then you have fewer people monitoring more cameras effectively, um, which allows them to be a lot more competitive in the marketplace. So how are we different than everybody else that's trying to build AI in this space? <clears throat> to be honest with you, we're not special, I think. But I think we're special for the security industry. Uh, the physical security industry is the most regressive, old-fashioned industry on planet Earth. And I see that in a very endearing way. Um, I've got a lot of friends in the industry, but most of them are older, conservative white men. Um, a lot of them with former military background like me or former law enforcement. Um, and, and the truth is the best and the brightest engineers and data scientists, they don't graduate from Stanford or Chicago and say, oh, I'm gonna go work in a physical security industry, right? They wanna go work for Waymo. They wanna go work for Google, whatever the case may be. So as a result, there's really a dark talent in the industry of people who can build really strong AI models that are effective. Um, and the other thing is that there's a lot of legacy infrastructure out there, uh, grainy security cameras, grainy footage, and people are still expecting AI companies to be able to render effective detections on legacy infrastructure without them having to rip and replace their cameras. So we built an in-house, very talented in-house data science team. Um, we spent a lot of effort and due diligence in recruiting. And I think that's honestly our biggest competitive advantage is that, um, is that we have we have a team in-house that is able to deliver at a much higher level than most other companies in, in the industry. Um, there's also a lot of companies out there who think that, you know, with the availability of so many open, open source things nowadays, like you can download a ton of libraries off of GitHub. YOLO is open source, right? Um, there's OpenCV, whatever the case may be. So a lot of people think that, okay, well, I can just go and hire some engineers in India or Ukraine and they'll build this out for me. Yeah, they'll build it and it'll be okay, but does it work well enough in production? Um, and the answer is oftentimes, almost all of the time, no. So I think that's where we've been able to see um, where we've taken some strength of ours that may not necessarily be profound strength in other industries, but they're really, really strong in the industry that we're operating in. Um, and the last thing I'll add on top of that is that sometimes there's good tech talent that comes in the industry and see, okay, well, I see an issue right for disruption. The problem is they can't sell. They can't sell, again, going back to the security industry culture, 
right? Um, older, more conservative, and your average Stanford PhD hotshot isn't going to be able to talk to uh, these men. And I say men because they are mostly men um, and be able to earn their trust and respect, unfortunately. Um, and that's where kind of Ben brings that technical background, having built AI for Microsoft for five years. And you know, I was in the Marine Corps for almost a decade. So I'm able to open doors in that way as well. So it's a really strong synergistic team. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's so much, so oftentimes the case, the cornered resource is really the people and it's the team and it's what you, it sounds like you guys have been able to build a team that has a ton of different disciplines, uh, and different backgrounds, uh, that, that give you almost a unique advantage in selling into this particular market. I, I, I would love to dive in a little bit deeper into how the product works from the customer's perspective. And I guess maybe just uh, some clarifying questions. It sounds like um, could, could you walk us through who are sort of the buyers at the end of the day of this product and, and what type of companies are you selling? For example, are you selling this directly into automobile dealerships or are you no. selling it into the security companies that they hire to protect their physical goods? And then walk us through sort of what it yeah. looks like end to end for those buyers. Usually the latter, uh, but we do. So we do segment our customers into the security companies or security distributors, security monitoring centers, whatever you call it, and also the end users. Because sometimes the end users, actually a lot of times the end users have their own private security teams as well, right? And they don't need to contract that out. I mean, for example, UChicago has their UCPD. Um, Facebook has their own internal security team and they're a huge security operations center, which we visited. Um, so those are two customer segments that we're going after, but we are primarily focusing our efforts right now on the monitoring companies and distributors, just because when you land one of those, you get scale, right? Uh, I could spend uh, a year and a half in a sales cycle with a major fortune 10 tech company um, and it being a $50,000 contract just because their sales cycle is so long and so bureaucratic and the scale is actually not going to be as big. Um, and as for kind of the other part of your question on how the product actually works. So we are 100% cloud-based. Uh, we operate on Amazon Web Services. Uh, thanks to, shout out to Polsky for the $10,000 in free AWS credits when we first started. Um, but yeah, what we do is we connect to the customer security camera systems, enable them to enable, enable, enabling us to be able to sample frames um, to the cloud and our AI model in the cloud processes these frames and sends back notifications showing the bounding box around a perceived threat. Uh, and that basically just nests with your existing security workflows, whatever types of software that you use. We have integrations with most major video management system platforms out there. Do you feel as if, is the product getting, the more customers you take on, the more edge cases you see, the more video, um, the more video footage you get, is the product always continually getting just that much better? Um, or would you say the product is sort of at its steady state and at least from a technical perspective, from a you know machine learning, computer vision perspective, um, it, it's sort of as good as it's going to be. And now it's about scaling at this point. It's about you know, continue to pour gasoline on the fire. Or is the product always getting better as you bring on more accounts? No, we, yeah, the product, the product is always getting better. Um, and maybe that's not the right way to phrase it. We are always making a product better, right? Because it's not unsupervised learning. Um, it, it is, we are mostly doing supervised learning. So uh, the data science team puts a lot of work into monitoring how the product is performed to each customer. Um, and if the product doesn't work in one way or another, um, for example, if it misses detection, we'll hear it from the customer 
and we'll have to make adjustments. Uh, the, the other part as well is that hardware is getting better. Right? And that's a, that's a really key component is because one thing we have to manage is costs, AWS costs. Now we are a lot cheaper than most kind of on-prem solutions just because you don't have to purchase hardware and installate, build installations and whatnot. But as um, hardware costs continue to go down, as GPUs and uh, TPUs and ASICs, whatever, keep getting better and better, um, we're able to run more and more heavyweight models, more complex models. They'll ensure that accuracy of our models becomes better and better as well without runaway computing costs. So those are two areas where we're continuously um, are, are already making improvements. And are you guys using any data annotation services like, you know, something like a scale AI or synthetic data? Have you guys invested at all into those types of services? No, funny. No, we're not using any data annotation services. The reason is because early on in our company's development, uh, our data scientist roommate, who has a, a, a math degree, applied math degree from UIC, um, and he's from Eastern Europe, he's got him and his friends are like, data annotation ninjas. They're like way more accurate and way more efficient than anyone else we've seen. And we pay them a, like a, a real, you know, a, a real living wage, even for, even for a major city like Chicago. Um, so yeah, we pay more, we pay more than what you would pay. I don't know if skill I use like mechanical Turk or whatnot, but we've just seen kind of the results of these annotation services not be that good. Um, and honestly, like the performance of your model is in large part how accurately your data is annotated, right? So if you're outsourcing to somebody getting paid, you know, $2 an hour on MTurk, you know, you, you get what you pay for. So, so we decide to opt out of that route. No, that, that makes a ton of sense. And I guess random tangent, but is that something that you found if you have sort of um, friends in the industry who are also running kind of AI driven startups, uh, what would you say is the norm? Are most people flocking towards these data annotation um, companies or would you say there's been sort of a period of disillusionment and what the actual product is that they're putting out and whether it's actually all that helpful in the end? So um, I can't speak for other people because I don't have I don't think I have any AI founder friends. I need to make some. So if you have any introductions, especially in New York, I'm always looking for people to hang out with, hook it up. But um, I would lean yes. I would lean yes because Scale AI didn't raise $650 million of funding with no traction, right? People are using them. Um, the other element I should probably introduce is that um, our imagery is notoriously difficult to annotate, right? It's not like I'm giving you a photo of a dog and it's like a stock photo. It's like clearly a dog. Okay, I just need to draw a bounding box around a dog. Okay. If you're seeing a person in a frame and it's in the security camera footage and you're 50 meters away from a camera and you're kind of looking like, is that a freaking person? Yeah, I think, okay, let me go to the next frame. Let me see if it's a person. It's really not easy sometimes. And that's another reason why um, we rely on our in-house team. And that's not usually an issue that most other AI companies will run into. Yeah, no, I mean, or at least less of an, at least less of an issue. I would right. Say. Yeah. Right. I mean, I always love how in the detective shows they can, you know, double click enhance, double click enhance, and just make that image that was once grainy that much more uh, visible. But I don't think that actually exists in the real world uh, to the degree. At least uh, actually, oh, I don't know. It, it, it does. I mean, there's there's open source uh, websites out there where you can upload photos and uh, they'll use some sort of of GAN or something to make your photo a high res. I took a photo that I took from. 
uh, Afghanistan 2012. I didn't take that many photos in Afghanistan, but one I had my full kit, I had my rifle, and um, I ran through one of these and it came back HD. So it was honestly pretty impressive. I can wow. I can show you. Yeah, 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 yeah. That 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 already exists. Wow. Now, can they do that for grainy security camera yeah. footage? Probably not, to be honest with you. Yeah. Um, yeah. So. No, so so I'd love to first off would love to see that at some point. Uh, that's that's really interesting. Um, I would love to talk a little bit about the applications and the industries you serve, and um, hear a little about about sort of the mix. So you know, schools, hospital, construction, um, industrial facilities. What would you say is kind of your guys' most prominent industry you serve? The biggest makeup of your customer accounts, um, and, and I guess I have a few kind of drill down questions into the schools point, just because it is so such a topical area right now and such a such a huge issue. Uh, I think on the national forefront. Yeah, I think at least in terms of our revenues, taking away the uh, CB stuff we're doing for the government is that uh, the, the security monitoring companies. So the ones that monitor cameras on behalf of their end users. And our biggest customer has 8,000 cameras deployed with us. So it's like over half. Um, and they monitor every single school in a territory of Puerto Rico. Um, so I, I guess if you're talking about percentages, I could say, I could say schools, but where we're seeing a lot of traction is car dealerships and construction sites. Um, and the reason is because construction sites are mandated by law. They have to be monitored. Um, I don't know why, but I was told this several times by monitoring companies, and that's why they get a lot of customers there. And car dealerships, I mean, look, you've got you got dozens to hundreds of vehicles sitting in an open lot out there, and each vehicle is probably worth somewhere between twenty to fifty thousand dollars, right? So it's like a baby carrying a a, a, a pot of gold down the street. Um, it's it's just such a soft target for people who want to you know, commit some sort of, commit some sort of crime. So car dealerships end up being a big chunk as well. And probably the, the last one will be industrial sites, uh, distribution centers and whatnot. Uh, believe it or not, there's a lot of people who come in to steal raw materials like copper wire, for example, and sell yeah. it on a black market. If, if you've ever seen an episode of the Sopranos, I mean, which I have seen them all, that's a, that's, that's a, definitely a, 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 it sounds like a huge yeah, it's, a, for... it's, a, it's a thing. It's a thing. Um, so we protect a lot of those sites as well. Um, where we would love to be able to grow more in traction, we have a lot of pilots that are um, in motion right now, is with kind of retail stores, with uh, corporate security camp or corporate campuses, with hospitals, and with schools from an end customer standpoint, as opposed to through a security monitoring center. So a lot of those in motion right now, um, but the lion's share of our business so far is through security monitoring companies. And for schools, high schools, for examples, I mean, is that on the roadmap? Is that a possibility or is it, or is it just- I mean, we I mean, already have that... some. Okay. Yeah, we already have some, but these schools are mostly just, if they're working with us as an end customer, they're mostly paying for gun detection. Yeah. So we're able to identify gun threats and send alerts to uh, their administration, their administration leadership team, as well as the school resource officer if they have one. Yeah. So they can yeah. immediately kind of know what next steps to take. And is it the school districts, like public school districts, you're selling into, or is it individual schools that are coming to you? Because I guess to your point about the you know selling directly into one Fortune 500 company, you know how long those sales cycles are, and just you know scaling that. Is it one school that's coming to you, or more like larger districts as a whole, which many schools fall under? Uh, Pre-pandemic, we were running pilots with several large school districts, um, but when the pandemic hit, then those kind of went away. 
Uh, most of the schools that we're currently working with now are smaller schools, uh, private schools, because they're able to make faster decisions and it's less bureaucratic. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I just, I, it's, you know, it, it's crazy the times we live in now, but it feels like in the future solutions like this, um, I don't know. I, I see them becoming much more um, viable for a lot of schools because to your point, gun violence is not something that's going to be solved. Um, it seems like in the near future. So, you know, measures like this, preventative measures um, seem like they're going to be a necessity um, in the long run. Um, you know, I, I, I'd love to talk a little bit about sort of, you mentioned you raised that Series A in May. Um, what have been kind of some of the uses of those funds and, and what's kind of on the roadmap for 2022? People. <laughs> People. I mean, we grew our team from nine to 25. And I, I know 25 is still small by Series A standards. I've seen seed companies with more people than that, but uh, we just value quality over quantity. Um, I walk into through those doors every single day and I just look around and I'm just, it's honestly touching that I, I can't believe I get to work with so many amazing people. Um, and I can't believe that these great people who could have gone to any institution um, in, in any city in the world chose to come and work with me and work with us. And that's just a very, very profoundly humbling experience. Um, so yeah, <laughs> it's, it's definitely, I mean, it's mostly, it's mostly for hiring to be honest with you. I mean, there's this, there's this guy, there's this guy that, uh, who's that guy from Seattle, Dan Price, who says, Oh yeah, I pay everyone $70,000 a year. And, um, you know, he, he became viral for his guys, 15 minutes of fame. Now he's going to write a book and whatnot. It's like, yo, like we're already doing that. Right. And we're substantially above that. Um, but look, we don't need to publicize that. I think good people deserve to get paid. Um, and we'd rather have a small elite group that can really execute than uh, a large group that is just maybe not as strong. Right? And look, Instagram sold to Facebook for a billion dollars and they have 12 employees. So right. uh, we're, we're already behind the ball curve when it comes to Instagram. <laughs> um, and then as you look to 2022, uh, any kind of big strategic milestones you guys are looking to hit or, or sort of initiatives you're looking to take on? I mean, the obvious answer, the answer that our VCs want to hear is one, three extra revenues. And I think we have a roadmap to do so. Uh, we are building out a marketing team that we currently don't have. Before, it was just kind of me, Ben, and the agency working together. Uh, our sales team has has doubled already, um, and we bring bring on very empathetic and thoughtful salespeople. Uh, we're trying to turn sales into not so much of a dirty word, where people are actually excited to talk to our people in sales because they get value out of their conversations. Um Besides that, we are also trying to grow our government business as well. We have that one government contract, but we're looking for other ways that we can add value to Defense Department, especially because of my um, Marine Corps background. Um, and yeah, I think those are the three prongs there in the fire. I, I think in 2022, besides taking more market share with security monitoring, which is uh, kind of the obvious primary goal, we also want to start getting more of a foothold in end user market because the TAM there is just unlimited. Security monitoring at TAM is going to be smaller, but uh, for, for end users, I mean, everybody has security cameras, right? So there's a way for us to add value to their operations, help them drive cost savings while not sacrificing their security posture. We should definitely look for ways to do so. Have you ever found it a challenge to kind of go after 
um, multiple different sort of addressable markets at the same time. Um, you know, the, the common convention in business school is usually uh, when you're looking at startups, you know, you want to see that so first addressable market and then move into tangential markets yeah. at the Series B level. But, you know, it seems like you guys really sprung on a great opportunity that you had. But have you ever just found it a challenge to kind of go after different? It's, sort of- it's, 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 always, it's always a challenge, but we, uh, you know, we 80 20 and we focus on what's going to. Uh, we focus on the areas where we know for a fact we can add, add a lot of value to a customer. And right now that's security monitoring. Um, in other types of market segments, uh, we still have to do some customer discovery. A series A company is not a mature company. You have product market fit, but you have something that is not 100% scalable and repeatable yet. Otherwise you'd be on your path to IPOing, right? Uh, so that's something that we're tr- continuously trying to figure out. Uh, we have several customers that we're piloting with on retail analytics. So helping them identify which areas of the store and which shelves are seeing more foot traffic and whatnot. And that's just all using their existing security cameras. We think there's a big opportunity there. Um, We have some companies approach us for insurance purposes to identify um, slip and fall incidents, which apparently is a massive driver for insurance costs uh, here in the United States. So we have a lot of use cases in the fire, but the great thing is that uh, these models, a lot of times they're, somewhat fungible. It's not like the engineering team, for the most part, has to do a metric ton of customer development for us to build some sort of MVP that we're able to to pilot with a customer. So that makes it a lot easier to go after some of these other customer segments, understand uh, where their pain points are and see if we can build something that can solve their problems. And Sonny, this has been such an amazing, you know, conversation for me personally. I, I'm so interested in this space and what you guys are building. I, I did have, um, you know, maybe one or two last questions. I mean, I don't get to talk to many, uh, funny as it is, Series A, you know, last stage was Series A. It seems like they found product market fit for you guys. When was it? that you realized, you know, you'd found product market fit? Was it the level of <laughs> ARR you were reaching? Was it cohort uh, retentions? Hey, look, it was, it was that, I mean, it was that $350,000 contract. I mean, look, we're at 10K ARR, right? And, and we had 20 pilots that just went poof because of the pandemic. And we're wondering, hey, look, we got runway, but do we have a business? Right? And once we signed that contract and that first check came in, I think we're just collectively, our hands are on our heads, like guys run to something here. Um, and, and clearly we were because 10 months after that, we closed our series A. Um, now in terms of really like ensuring we have product market fit, I think was, you know, we had that customer, we had another one that was also relatively big. Then we started tr- dipping our toes into raising series A uh, then a lot of funds, even one fund who had like nine interviews with us, which is a lot. And it came back with the same feedback. Hey, you have too, too much customer concentration, still too risky for us. This could be a one-off, right? So we went and raised from a bunch of, uh, dipped our toes into raising Series A and talked to a bunch of funds. We got a lot of feedback that we had too much customer concentration. They think that might be a one-off, um, whatnot. But we had a bunch in the pipeline that were uh, pretty deep and we knew it would close in shorter order. So in late 2020, we said, okay, let's just put a pause on this and not raise, um, go and close a few more customers. And we did. And we did. Um, a few months later, we came back and we closed in like a month and a half. So uh, that was when we knew for a fact that we're onto something. But really after closing that first big contract, you knew because if somebody's willing to pay that much money for what you're building, then clearly there's others out there. So 
Sonny, uh, I think it sounds like you guys uh, are well on your way to being one of the most important and successful companies uh, to come out of Chicago Booth and Chicagoland area. And I just want to thank you so much for taking the time to come and chat with me. I really, really appreciate it. And I just love this conversation. If people want to find Actuate, learn more about you, either from a customer standpoint or just pure curiosity, where can they go? Yeah, so www.actuate.ai. ACTUATE.ai is our website, or find me on LinkedIn. I'm always down. When, when I see it's a booth alum, I accept immediately, even though I get a lot of spam. So <laughs> awesome. awesome. Uh, Sonny, thank you so much. Take care. Sounds good, Matt. Thank you.